Hello, and welcome to Golden State Naturalist. I'm Michelle Fulner, and this episode, we're going to go on an adventure into some vernal pools. Now, if you're anything like me, you've likely spent most of your life having no idea what a vernal pool is. Maybe you're here and you don't know what they are right now. That's okay. I only found out about them in my California naturalist class, and I'm so grateful I did because they're so unique and amazing, and now I'm completely taken with them. But okay, what is a vernal pool? They're ephemeral or temporary wetlands that, at least here in California, go through three distinct phases. Wet, flower, and dry. There'll be a lot more on each of those phases later in the episode. But just know that this unique cycle of going through a wet phase where there's all these aquatic invertebrates and then a flower phase where these beautiful flowers grow into the vernal pools and then a dry phase means that there's also a very unique sort of habitat. And a lot of species of plants and invertebrate animals can only be found in vernal pools. So this blew my mind when I heard about it, especially since I've spent basically my entire life in California and had no idea these were even here. My guest, David Rosen, on the other hand, has been working working in and around vernal pools for the last 19 years. He's so knowledgeable and also just so fun to hang out with. We met up during the wet phase in February. So in this episode, you're going to hear about a lot of the aquatic invertebrates. You're also going to hear about some insects with no mouths, which common pest breathes through a tube in its butt when it's in its larval phase, species that indicate good water quality, what kinds of birds and amphibians live in vernal pools, why I'm so thankful that some of these invertebrates are tiny and not human-sized, solitary bees, the underlying geology required to have vernal pools, the flowers that live there, and so much more. The best word that I can think of to describe my time out at the pools is enchanting. It was just a magical experience that really brought me back to my childhood, just looking into this water and seeing what lived there. And I cannot wait to share that experience with you. I think you're going to love it. But first, I wanted to remind you to make sure that you follow or subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening. So if you're on Apple Podcasts, that means clicking the little plus sign in the upper right-hand corner. It should look like a check mark if you already did that. I also wanted to let you know that you can follow me at Golden State Naturalist on Instagram to see all kinds of cool pictures of my outings with naturalist and sometimes I'll post a call for questions so you can chime in to get all of your burning nature questions answered. So that's Golden State Naturalist on Instagram. Finally, don't forget to share this podcast with any nature-loving friends so you might consider sharing with hikers, backpackers, campers, gardeners, people who like to go for walks, the environmentally conscious, anyone who's naturally curious, and the first person you would think to call if you found a wounded possum in your backyard. Hopefully it's the wildlife rescue, but if you called this person, they would tell you that. So please share this podcast with any and all of those people. And without further ado, let's get our boots on and check out some vernal pools with biologist, wildlife photographer, and naturalist with 40 years of experience in the field, and also just all around great guy, David Rosen, on this episode of Golden State Naturalist. like just a vast open grassland but when we step over that fence and venture out into it you're going to be amazed because it is dotted with little vernal pools each of which is unique 
and each of which is teeming with little aquatic invertebrates right now. When David and I met up, it was at the end of February, and it was a beautiful, sunny day, and we hopped in his truck and we drove out on a gravel road out in Mather Field. And as I looked out the window, I really couldn't see that much. It just looked like open grassland covered in these little mounds that with the grass on top of them kind of gave the illusion of waves in the ocean. But I couldn't see any vernal pools from where we were on the road. The conversation you're hearing now is when we had gotten out of the truck and we were standing on that gravel road looking out at the grassland. And how big is each vernal pool? It varies. Some vernal pools are really tiny, some are huge, and some can be just a few inches deep and others several feet deep. So it really kind of depends on the geology of the area and it depends on that particular vernal pool. And, and can that impact what kind of life is found in the pool? Most definitely. Yeah, the uh, deeper vernal pools sometimes have different critters living in them than the shallow vernal pools because the deeper vernal pools maintain the water in them longer during mm. the season. So let's go further down to a vernal pool and see, Sounds what's, good. see what's in there. So we crossed over the fence off of the gravel road and we're walking in the grass. And just out of nowhere, as we get closer, I st- I'm starting to see a couple of vernal pools. At this point, David had on his galoshes, and he got this white tray, and he scooped some of the water from the vernal pool into it. Then he took a few careful steps out into the pool, and with a long net, did some practiced motions back and forth through the water. It's worth noting here that To be able to scoop in a vernal pool, you have to have a lot of paperwork done. So Sac Splash, the organization that David works for, has both federal and state permits. So don't go try to scoop in a vernal pool because a lot of the animals in there are protected species. So we just got a big old net full of the water from the vernal pool. With We got a scoop of the water and then a net full of what was living in the water. And so I'm looking into this pan, this broad white pan, and I see some big guys in here. I see some little red guys with these little antenna looking things swimming around. I see what looks like, I'm sure they're not, but they look like little slugs (laughs) on the bottom. That's a good description. And and all the little crawly guys that are the lighter color. These are terrible descriptions, but, but it's just teeming. It is teeming with life. It truly is. And this is one of the things that makes a vernal pool a vernal pool, is the unique aquatic critters that live in the vernal pools. Many of these only live in vernal pool habitat. Nowhere else in the world but vernal pools. So we call them endemic creatures to the vernal pools. David and I got to look at some of those vernal pool endemic creatures, and we also looked at a lot that are not endemic to vernal pools, but can be found in a lot of different types of bodies of water. We recorded for over two hours. I would love to include everything from that, but it's just too long, so I had to pick and choose. I tried to pick my favorites, but it was really hard because it was all super fascinating. I'm gonna let David tell you about some of those creatures now. And the first couple you hear about can actually be found in a lot of different places. So what's the big guy here? So this this large one right here 
look through your magnifying glass and uh -huh. if you look at the sides do you see those beautiful yes. feathery gills those are gills those are gills and you'll see it quiver those gills in the water and that's how they absorb oxygen from the water and wow. breathe and that is a mayfly larva if you're hearing this and you're like okay what is a mayfly that's all right they're in the same family as dragonflies and damselflies, and they do look sort of similar. They have those kind of glassy looking wings and they're aquatic insects. They also have long tails. They're kind of cute. It's worth looking up a picture. And, and so the mayfly larvae, this actually, it's really interesting. I've worked out here 19 years and have spent countless hours wandering around the vernal pools collecting specimens. So of all the years though that I've been scooping out here, this year we have seen more of these beautiful little mayfly larvae than any other year. Really? Not, not sure why. Uh, conditions this mm -hmm. year just tend to favor them, I guess. You know, when, when they become adults, they don't even have any mouth parts. They just mate? Yep. Their sole purpose in their adult stage is to find a mate, reproduce, and lay eggs, and then they die. What a And life. so many of these mayfly species only live 24 hours or less. I believe there's a species of mayfly in Florida that it hatches, and they all hatch at the same time. It's a synchronous hatching, oh or I, I'm saying hatching, it's a synchronous metamorphosis right, right, right. of, of the larvae mm -hmm. um, into the adult winged form. They all leave the water at the same time, and it is a mating frenzy oh, for wow. these animals. And they, and they, they yeah, and some of the Florida species that I was referring to, I think, dies within three or four hours. Oh, my goodness. What yeah. a sight that would be to see. Yep. Okay, so I didn't look into the specific Florida species of mayfly, but I did look up mayflies in general, and it looks like the males might live for one or two days typically, but the females usually only live for five minutes. They have five minutes to find a mate, lay their eggs, and die, and that's it. I found a page on pbs.org that even has a poem about this by a California poet, Darren Gav Bluell, and here's what it says. The mayfly never sees the dawn but once before his end, to think he's born upon the morn, yet not see one again. So that's really sad, but also beautiful, and a little bit like our lives. So remember the mayfly. Okay, now at this point, David is going to back up a little bit and give some more context, a little bit more information about vernal pools and the life cycle of the creatures that live there. This part blew my mind more than almost anything he said all day. Vernal pools, one of the things that makes them unique is they're ephemeral. They dry up every year. The majority of these animals that we're looking at right now, these little invertebrate critters, they actually need the pool to dry up. Really? If the pool stayed wet year round, they wouldn't survive. Oh my goodness. They wouldn't survive. And the reason is that these little aquatic invertebrates, when they reproduce, they lay cysts that are eggs but with a very hard cyst-like coating 
it's a shell, mm -hmm. and it's a fully formed embryo inside. And so they might be reproducing multiple generations during the time that the vernal pool is wet, mm -hmm. but when the pool starts to dry down, it triggers uh, changes in these invertebrates, and then they lay their cysts that will stay right on the soil at the bottom of the vernal pool, sometimes for a hundred years or Are more. you serious? Yeah, yeah, and they just are resistant to the desiccation and heat of baking in the Sacramento summers. Yeah. Which is um, incredible because I've gone outside for five minutes in Sacramento in the summer exactly, before. Exactly. And yeah. I, I promptly went back inside. When it's 110 <laughs> out here, yeah. you know, with the air temperature, you figured the, the surface of the soil temperature is probably like 130 oh or gosh. more. And there are all these little microscopic cysts from these aquatic invertebrates that are just there baking oh in the sun. Goodness. But they need that to survive. If the pool fills up the following year, some of them will hatch into embryos. Some of them won't hatch. That's a so, smart strategy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and what they're doing is they're hedging their bets. Yeah. And so if all of them came out of their cysts at one time and then the pool dried up too fast, then they wouldn't done have time. Forever. Yeah, exactly. Oh my goodness. And so from a species perspective, yeah. it's a wonderful strategy to stagger their emergence from the cysts. Wow. So some of the other ones that we see in here, do you see these little squiggly guys? Oh yeah, what's that guy? So this little one is kind of, it looks like it's what, about a centimeter long. Here's another one right here, squiggling through the water. They move by bending their bodies back and forth. They and remind squiggling. me of mosquito larvae. That's exactly what That's they what are. That's what they are? Yep. I, good, it's the way they job. move. Yep. And this is kind of unusual to find mosquito larvae in our vernal pools here huh. at Bather Field because you see all the critters that are in here. Many of these little invertebrates eat detritus. They mm -hmm. eat the bacteria, the decomposers mm -hmm. that are feeding on the detritus. They eat the detritus itself. And so there's not a lot of dead matter in there giving off the decomposition mm -hmm. gases that mm -hmm. attract mosquitoes. Oh. So mosquitoes are attracted to stagnant, kind of eutrophying wetland areas. So should I feel bad about myself that mosquitoes like me more than other people? No, those are the adult mosquitoes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that, that must mean you're sweet. <laughs> I just smell good. Yes. Hopefully not like decom decomposing no, water. No, <laughs> no, that's just, that's just the larvae that, that feed on okay, that stuff. Okay, that's good. But Does anyone else relate to this? If I go hang out on the patio with my husband for 20 minutes on some nice warm evening, when we come back inside, I'll have like 15 mosquito bites and he will have zero. It's insane. The mosquito larvae are fascinating animals though. And you see how they squiggle and move, but then you'll always see them come back up to the surface and hang from their tail like this one. See how it's, it's hanging from its butt? Yeah. Right up at the surface. So they have a tube coming out from the top of their body, just back by the hind end. And that is a breathing tube. It's like oh a snorkel. Gosh. And so they, they hang out at the top of the water. You see these two are doing it right here. Mm -hmm. And they're getting oxygen. And then when they get enough oxygen, they go back down into the water like these over here. Now, if you were to look at it under the microscope, you would see these really pretty kind of golden brown brush-like structures mm. by their head. Mm -hmm. And they wave in the water. 
And what they're doing is they're creating a current and they're filtering out little protozoa oh. and little bits of algae and detritus and things like that. And that's what they eat. According to Terminix.com, mosquitoes only need as little as a bottle cap of water to be able to breed. I've also heard of them breeding in snail shells. Terminix also lists trash can lids, flower pots, discarded cups, buckets, grill covers, and tires as some of the places where these guys breed. So make sure to check all of those areas in your backyard. It doesn't take very much water. But what about a creature that's a little bit more picky about the water that it lives in? So what are these really pale, like flea looking guys? Like if, uh, like if fleas were really pale and they swam around. Well, you just nailed it. Those, <laughs> those, are? those are water, <laughs> water fleas. fleas. Now they're not related to terrestrial mm. fleas. But somebody like else thought get. they looked like fleas exactly. at some point. Exactly. <laughs> Someone else thought so too. And so they're in the genus Daphnia. And so you might sometimes hear people talking about Daphnia being used for water quality experiments Ooh. and things like oh, that. They're very sensitive to water quality. And one thing that is in common with all these little creatures that you find inhabiting vernal pools is they all need clean water to survive. Mm. Okay? So it must be doing well because these guys are thriving out here. Exactly. And so the vernal pools tend to have very clean water. And the water, although it looks like it's still, it actually is flowing. Really? I was going to ask. I was like, because it seems like it would get stagnant out exactly. here, no? The water in these vernal pools, it doesn't fill up because it rains and fills this shallow depression here. The way vernal pools fill up is from the bottom up. Oh my gosh. Because when it rains, there's a layer of hard pan, uh -huh. uh, impermeable hard pan, mixture of clay and dissolved minerals underneath the soil. It might be six inches deep, it might be a foot deep, might mm -hmm. be a foot and a half deep, it depends on where you're standing. But when it rains, the water collects on top of this hard pan layer. And as it rains more, the water level rises. Eventually, the top of that perched water table becomes visible in these shallow depressions that we call vernal pools. Wow, so this is kind of, tell me if this is wrong, it's sort of like just a place where the water table is much higher and then you've got like a grassland. Correct. And then there's some depressions and then all that all works together to make vernal pools? Kind of, yep. And, and there have actually been some experiments done right here at the vernal pools at Mather through University of California, I believe, and they were actually measuring. They had a bunch of PVC pipes mm. sticking down into mm -hmm. the ground that had very sensitive instruments to measure water infiltration into the soil, water movement, uh -huh. subsurface. And um, they found that the water throughout this entire vernal pool grassland complex, that water that's perched on that hard pan layer is flowing. And so the entire perched water table is flowing. That is incredible. So, so the vernal pools get refreshed yeah. with fresh water. And so it must filter through the soil, filter through exactly. all the plants and everything that's going. Which helps clean the water oh if gosh. there are any impurities in it. So don't judge me, but I googled, can you drink vernal pool water? And not so surprisingly, no one had an answer for this, probably because no one wants to get sued, but also because everyone on the internet unanimously says you should never drink any natural water source without first filtering it 
and then purifying it either by boiling it or chemically purifying it, which should not be done with chemicals that you concoct yourself, but with specific tablets that are sold with the express purpose of making drinking water. There's a lot of little tiny things in the water that even if the water tastes really good, they could still really mess you up. But those water fleas actually are one of the more amazing critters that we have in the vernal pools because of their life cycle. So right now we're fairly early in the, the vernal pool season and chances are nearly 100% of the water fleas that we see right in front of us here are females. Really? Yeah. And so when the vernal pools first fill up with water, Water, and the water flea cysts that were just sitting on the soil uh -huh. for Lord knows how long, when they hatch out, all those are females. Oh my gosh. And they'll go through multiple generations. How uh, do they reproduce? Parthenogenically. Wow. Yeah, they just clone themselves. Oxford Languages defines parthenogenesis as reproduction from an ovum without fertilization, especially as a normal process in some invertebrates and lower plants. And so the female will produce a bunch of eggs, each is an exact clone of the female water flea. Oh my goodness. And then they carry those eggs around in their carapace, in mm -hmm. their shell. And if you look at water fleas, female water fleas that have these eggs in their shell, you can actually see them. And when you look at them through a microscope or you might be able to see it with the hand mm -hmm. lens. And uh, so you might find some that have some eggs in them. Now, they will continue to do this until the the pool starts to dry down, as I was mentioning mm -hmm. before. And that triggers hormonal changes in these animals that make them start producing some eggs that will hatch into males. Oh my goodness. And so the, the sex determination in these eggs is actually controlled by environmental conditions. That reminds me of like sea turtles. Oh, With sea okay. turtles, it has to be a certain temperature for a clutch of eggs will be laid under the sand, and then if it's a certain temperature, they'll be male, and a certain temperature, they'll be female. Okay, so this process in sea turtles is called temperature-dependent sex determination, or TSD. That's according to oceanscience.noaa.gov. Research shows that if a turtle's eggs incubate below 81.86 degrees Fahrenheit, the turtle hatchlings will be male. If the eggs incubate above 87.8 degrees Fahrenheit, however, the hatchlings will be female. Temperatures that fluctuate between the two extremes will produce a mix of male and female baby turtles. David said that it might be temperature or it might be photo period or maybe some other factors in the pools that trigger this sex determination in the water fleas there. As the pool starts to dry down, and it triggers these changes in these water fleas, they start producing haploid eggs as opposed to the diploid eggs. So these haploid eggs, well, they, they start producing eggs that hatch into males, and then they produce these haploid eggs that need to, sexual reproduction to be able to Mature, develop. Yeah. Exactly. And so late in the season, you will often see these little water fleas with two brown cyst-like structures on their backs inside their carapace. Oh Those are called ephippia. Each one's an ephippium. Ephippium. <laughs> yep. Ephippia. And ephippia okay. is plural. And these ephippia actually are the cysts 
that will survive the dry phase of the vernal pool each year oh and bake goodness. in the hot Sacramento summer. And, they just, and they're then cool. next time the conditions are right and the pool fills up with water, boom, you've got little water fleas, uh -huh. but they're going to be females. Wow. So, and it all starts over again. Exactly. So it is just a truly remarkable process. So do all of these critters in the vernal pools get along? not so much. David says there are some pretty intense predators in the vernal pools. Some of these little aquatic invertebrates like the dragonfly and damselfly larvae and the aquatic beetle larvae prey upon things like the mosquito larvae, which is another one of the reasons you don't see too much mosquito larvae in the vernal pools. And one of the predators that surprised me the most, I'm just gonna let David tell you about it. Those are flatworms. Flatworms. Yep, and we have mm, three primary species of uh, flatworms that we typically find out here. And most of what we've got in here right now are these dark flatworms. Mm -hmm. Okay. The, we do periodically scoop up some lighter brown flatworms. Mm -hmm. And one of my favorites are the bright fluorescent green flatworms. Oh my goodness. They're about the same size. Uh, as the ones you're looking at here, but they're bright green. And they actually have a species of algae that is living inside their bodies. Now, the algae is photosynthetic, so it's making its own food, and it Whoa. shares some of that food with the flatworm. That's convenient. Yeah. I need that. And then, <laughs> and then the flatworm provides shelter for the algae. Rather than just these free-floating algal cells going through the vernal pool water, they find a home inside this flatworm. And uh, so that's what's going on with the bright green flatworms. Now, wow. all these flatworms can prey upon other critters in the vernal pool. But the flatworms have a mouth part in their stomach and it's like a tube that projects out and they can insert it into their prey and slurp the insides of their yeah it is horrifying <laughs> just just be very very glad they're they're not bigger than we I'm are i'm really glad but yeah so they suck the innards out of their prey item and then they bring their mouth part back in but then after they digest stuff it's not a continuous digestive system it's a closed oh. system and so they poop out the same opening oh my gosh. Well, that they were eating. That's what they get for through. sucking someone's guts out. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. They'll lull you into a false sense of security. They look so squishy and harmless. Well, you know, I I, I shot a video one time of flatworms under a microscope, mm -hmm. and uh, and I was watching it, and it was all three of these species. So there were the the black ones, the brown ones, the green ones, and they were all just flowing through the water. Yeah. And it reminded me of lava lamps oh, from the yeah. 70s. Oh, for sure. And so I thought, oh, this just really needs a Pink Floyd song <laughs> in the background. And did you do so it? Did I you did. do it? Yes, I did. good for you. Yep. Being, being oh. a child of the 60s and 70s myself. Oh, that's great. Have you gone into a cozy trance inspired by this talk of Pink Floyd? Have you become comfortably numb? Well, I don't want you to become just another brick in the wall, so I'm going to have to break up this party and tell you about a creature that's actually got a few things in common with the flatworms, but it takes things to a new level of sci-fi horror. So get ready for this. Here's a tiny little aquatic beetle larva. 
Mm. Okay, look how small that is. Yeah. But if you look at it with your magnifying glass, you might notice that it's got some serious pinchers for its size at the at its head. I don't know if you can see the pinchers or not with the magnifying glass. But the aquatic beetle larvae can get much larger. Uh -huh. I've seen them where they've been nearly three inches long. And they've got the pinchers. huge pinchers. Oh my goodness. And, and it's something like from a science fiction movie because they will grab their prey and things even as large as tadpoles, these little aquatic invertebrates, the, the aquatic beetle larvae, will eat vertebrate animals <laughs> if they can get them. Wow. And so they, they will grab a hold of the tadpole, for example, with those big pinchers. And through those pinchers, they inject an enzyme. And they keep holding on with the pinchers. They're injecting this enzyme. The enzyme dissolves the insides of the tadpole. And then the remarkable thing is the aquatic beetle larva can reverse the pump mechanism on its pinchers. And it turns into straws. And it Gosh. slurps out that tadpole soup. Again, I'm really glad these aren't human-sized creatures. Exactly. <laughs> Well, when, when at Splash, when we have school groups coming out, we go and we scoop up samples from usually two or three different vernal pool sites. And we usually get some aquatic beetle larvae. Yeah. A little later in the season, some of these are large, you know, pushing two to three inches long. Whoa. Big pinchers. Yeah, they're tiny right now. And uh, one day, uh, one of my colleagues at Splash and I were, were looking at these critters that we had scooped up and and I said, hey, I'll give you a buck if you stick your finger in with that aquatic beetle larva. And she did. She stuck her pinky finger in there and it nailed her. <laughs> so they don't oh. care what it is. Okay, how big you are. Exactly. They're opportunistic oh and goodness. they they feel I mean, she felt a little pinch. It yeah, didn't hurt a lot. It didn't hurt. Okay. And you know, she pulled her finger out of the water and yeah. it let go. But uh yeah, they're very opportunistic and so they will go after whatever happens to be available and get the energy from it that they need. A little bit later, we actually got to see one of these aquatic beetle larvae in action, and it was insane. Oh, look, look at this. There's the aquatic beetle larva, and it grabbed oh. something else. Oh, it got something. Oh, yeah. Can I borrow your magnifying yeah, yeah. glass real quick? Let's see. What did it get? Oh, man. Oh, look. It, it got it's a like mayfly a... larva. Wow. It, it's got a, a tiny little mayfly larva in its pinchers. And so it's grabbed that mayfly larva. It's injecting the enzymes through those pinchers, and it's dissolving the inside of the mayfly larva. So that's larva. why he's just hanging on there for a minute. Exactly. And then it'll suck the dissolved oh, insides out of that It reminds me of a larva. dog. That like, you know, got a squirrel and then it's shaking it. <laughs> yep, exactly. Trying to get it in position so it can get those pinchers in there. Because the aquatic beetle larvae don't have chewing mouth parts. And so they have, they to, have just to just suck, liquefy. Yeah, liquefy their prey and suck the juices up. I actually got a video of this moment and I'll post that on Instagram sometime within the next couple of days. But if this is all too horrifying for you and you're wondering 
What else lives around the pools? Well, the answer is a lot of things, including specialized vernal pool plants, including some vernal pool endemic flowers, meaning that some of these flowers are only found in vernal pools. Some of them have a very special relationship with solitary bees. Now, we tend to think of bees as living in large colonies because many of us are most familiar with European honeybees. But as the name implies, those bees are actually native to Europe, not North America. Many of our native bees here are completely solitary. And where European honeybees are great generalists and will pollinate a wide variety of flowers, which is one of the reasons they're so useful in agriculture, many native bees will have a highly specific, specialized relationship with just one species of flower. I'll let David tell you more about these bees. And there are several species of solitary bees out here in a few different genera. And the solitary bees associate with the vernal pools, but live more in the surrounding upland areas. So when we're talking about vernal pool conservation, we're not just talking about protecting the pool itself. Mm -hmm. We're talking about protecting an entire complex, an entire ecosystem that includes the wet vernal pool and the surrounding upland habitat. Because everything is connected in a vernal pool ecosystem and everything depends on everything else mm -hmm. within the vernal pool ecosystem. So these little solitary bees live underground. They're not a communal sort of bee like the honeybees. Mm -hmm. They don't have a big hive with you know many individuals. They just have a little hole in the ground and there's one bee yeah. <laughs> living in there, hence the name. Bilbo Baggins. Yep, exactly. In his exactly. little hole in that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> in the ground. Little hobbit hut. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. Not a nasty, dirty, wet hole filled with the ends of worms and an oozy smell, nor yet a dry, bare, sandy hole with nothing in it to sit down on or to eat. It was a hobbit hold, and that means comfort. And so they build this tunnel down into the soil, maybe 8 to 10, maybe 12 inches. Wow, that's far for a little bee. It is. And they'll have several little brood chambers mm -hmm coming off that main tunnel. So what they do is they just live underground and they get a signal, believe it or not, when they're underground, they know when their species of vernal pool flower is blooming. What? Yeah, it's, it's pretty remarkable. So is that in sync with it? They are. And, you know, conditions might be pretty good for Downingia to be blooming, for mm -hmm. example. Downingia is a really cute little vernal pool flower. It's purple and it reminds me a little bit of a pansy. But maybe this year at that pool, there's no Downingia hmm. blooming. Mm -hmm. The bees don't emerge. They can stay underground for two, three years. And then once their specific vernal pool flower blooms, boom, they come out, they'll start visiting those flowers and they'll gather all the pollen and within their little brood chambers in their underground tunnel, they make a little pollen ball. And on each of those pollen balls, they lay a single egg. Wow. And when the larva, little white wormy looking thing, mm -hmm. hatches out, then the larva eats that pollen ball, which is rich in protein. Mm -hmm. And it grows and grows and eventually metamorphoses into an adult winged solitary bee. Wow and repeats the cycle. 
So it sounds like that's what the females are doing, right? That's what, what the are females. The, what are the males doing? That's a great question. The males are just going around looking for females. All right, they're having a great time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so they're living the bachelor lifestyle, <laughs> and um, you know, when when the vernal pool plants bloom, the males, uh, you know, I think they still are pretty specific mm -hmm. to the flowers that they visit, but they're not building the the yeah, right. elaborate brood chambers mm -hmm. and things like that. They're just going around looking for nectar so they can survive. I'm not sure what the lifespan of these little bees mm -hmm. might be, but do know that they can stay underground mm -hmm. uh, for two to three years. Wow. And so there's several species out here? like Several species. And they, they sometimes have a specific species of vernal huh. pool flower that they so have cool. evolved to coexist with. Wow. And it's a mutualistic symbiosis because, you know, the bee benefits because it's gained the pollen so it can raise its young. And the flower benefits because in the process of the bee getting the pollen, the bee pollinates right. those flowers so they can go to seed. So they can, the baby bees come exactly. back next year. Exactly. <laughs> and there'll be more flowers for so, them. So, you know, it's just a perfect, perfect example of that. I'm so fascinated by these solitary bees. I would actually love to do a whole episode on native bees. So gonna keep my eyes out for somebody on that. But what kinds of vertebrate animals live in and around the pools? Vernal pools are really important, not just to the aquatic invertebrates, but to a host of other vertebrate animals yeah. that live in and around the surrounding grassland habitat. David is super knowledgeable about birds. Here are a couple that we heard and saw when we were out there in February. The Western Meadowlark. Western Meadowlark, I think, has one of the most beautiful bird songs oh, in, in, in the United States. They're brilliant yellow on the front with a, a jet black V mm -hmm. on their breast. So if you see them from the front, they stand out really boldly. But if they fly away and land out in the grasslands here, they blend in perfectly. They wow. virtually disappear and they nest on the ground. We also saw a greater yellow legs. Watch it feed. It's just going to be dipping back and forth mm -hmm. into the water and it's going to be pulling out all these little invertebrates that are so rich in protein. There are also a couple of amphibians such as the spadefoot, which are a little tiny type of toad. And they're the cutest little things. If you, if you look at a Western Spadefoot, you'll notice uh, it, it looks like Jabba the Hutt. There are also Sierran tree frogs in the pools. And we actually got to see a couple of their tiny, adorable tadpoles when we were out there. Now, David and I could have spent all day looking at invertebrates in the pools, but eventually it was time to move on to the interview. So we found a comfortable spot to sit on the grass beside one of the pools, and I pulled out my questions. There's so much good stuff in this interview, including more about what makes a vernal pool a vernal pool, science education that happens at Sacramento Splash where David works, the amount of pools we have left, where you can go to see one, and what times of year would be best to do that. You're going to hear about all of that and more right after a short break. Okay, one last thing before the interview, and that is that there was a lot of audio I just couldn't fit into this episode, including David and I talking about the genetic diversity of animals in the pools, how water boatmen carry their own oxygen underwater, invertebrates called copepods and seed shrimp, and more. And I'm going to put all of that up on patreon.com 
slash Michelle Fulner, which is a way for listeners and supporters of the show to directly help this podcast get made by donating as little as $4 a month. For that support, you get extra rewards like the audio extras that will be going up from this episode. Sometimes there are extra videos and behind the scenes updates on the show. Later this month, I'll also have my very first Ask Me Anything AMA and folks who become Oak level supporters, that's the highest level of support, by the end of April, will be getting a little thank you gift from me in May. Plus, you get my eternal gratitude and the knowledge that you're making this show possible for me to create, which enables all kinds of people to learn more about nature and why it's so important to protect it. Again, you can find all of that on patreon.com slash Michelle Fulner. That's Michelle with two L's. Fulner is F-U-L-L-N-E-R. Now let's get to the interview. How did you end up here? How did you end up interested in vernal pools and doing this work? That's, that's a great question. Gosh, I, I, I'd say it started when I was 12 and it was thanks to Sarah Lee coffee cake. What? Um, <laughs> so butter pecan coffee cake to be precise. And they used to come in these little round tins, uh-huh. aluminum tins. And uh, I decided one day when I was 12, asked my folks, hey, can I make a bird feeder? out of this and hang it up in our backyard and so we did we started getting a bunch of birds i fell in love with birds decided i don't know what i want to do if i ever grow up which i don't think i have (laughs) but it's going to involve nature it's going to involve wildlife Mm -hmm. and uh, sharing cool things with other people Mm -hmm. and so i've worked for over 40 years as a naturalist with various organizations and agencies and so forth and I've pursued my own photography business, shooting nature and wildlife photos for publications. And so I got a call one day from a woman named Eva Butler, and she was the founder of Sacramento Splash mm. back in the late 90s and, and 2000. And uh, she just recently retired, moved back to Maine, where she has a home. And Eva was contracting me as a photographer to photograph plants and animals mm. of the vernal pool ecosystem here at Mather Field. This was 19 years ago Mm -hmm. when I made first contact with Eva. So Eva is taking me around the vernal pools and pointing out all this cool stuff. And she is so passionate about vernal pools and so passionate about protecting it. And as we were walking, I just happened to share more about my background and, you know, my background in environmental education. And uh, she said, wow, we're looking for guides here at Splash. Would you be interested in guiding for us at Splash? And so I took maybe all of about 30 seconds and I told her, (laughs) you seem nice enough. Sure, what the hell? (laughs) And so that was how my relationship with Splash and Vernal Pool Ecosystems started. And I learned so much from Eva. Mm -hmm. And and you can't get a more passionate individual when it comes to Vernal Pools than Mm -hmm. Eva Butler. And so I just fell in love with Vernal Pools as well. And just from what you've seen today in the short time we've been out here, how could you not fall in love with vernal pools? I'm hooked. I'll be back. (laughs) Yeah. This is very cool. I actually already have gone back to see the flower phase, which I'll tell you a little bit more about later. But I'd also love to go back again during the dry phase and then again next year during the wet phase. I have a feeling there will just always be something interesting to see at the vernal pools. All right. So I think we need to back up a little bit too and say, what even, what is a vernal pool? Great question. 
Yeah, vernal pool is an ephemeral wetland. Here in California, it goes through three distinct phases. There's a wet phase, like what we're looking at right mm -hmm. now. We're sitting here by the edge of this beautiful vernal pool, and it's just full of water, okay? It's teeming with the aquatic invertebrates that mm -hmm. we've been looking at, and many of those are threatened and endangered species. Now, eventually, this pool is going to start drying up, and when it does, there's a unique set of plants that many of which only associate with vernal pools. They're vernal pool endemic mm. species, only found around vernal pools. And you start seeing rings of these flowers around the vernal pool as the vernal pool dries up. Eventually, those flowers, as, as the water goes away from the vernal pool through evaporation primarily, the flowers will cover the bottom of the vernal pool and so many different species of flowers during that flower phase. Okay, so as I mentioned a minute ago, I did just recently go back out to the vernal pools, and I did this during the flower phase, probably about a week ago now, and it was amazing. Very similar in the way that you walk out onto the grassland and it just looks like a grassland, but then you keep walking and now instead of finding a pool full of water, you find this basin of flowers and it's just this gold and purple and white and it's just gorgeous. And so now David is about to tell you the names of some of those flowers and I want to challenge you to just Google at least one of them because there are some very cool looking flowers out there. You've got vernal pool gold fields that coat the bottom of the pool. You've got mm -hmm. white navaricia that looks like snow has fallen on the vernal pool. You've got around the edges, you've got down ninja. We have three different species of down ninja mm. here. Uh, we have vernal pool checker bloom and meadow foam and vernal pool monkey flower. And, you know, th that's just, I mean, there are dozens and dozens of really amazing species of plants. So we've talked about two phases, mm -hmm. the wet phase and the flower phase. Now, eventually, these flowers will have all been pollinated. They've all gone to seed. They've dispersed their seeds. And the pool is totally dry. And that usually happens here at Mather Field by uh, late April. The pools usually are pretty dry. By mid-May, things are pretty hot and crispy out mm -hmm. here. So and the flowers are pretty much done by that point? The flowers are done by that point. There might still be a few species of flowers that grow in upland areas mm -hmm. blooming in, in mid to late May, but you know, not too many. And so we've got those three distinct phases that the vernal pools go through. Mm -hmm. So that's something that makes the vernal pools unique. And the little vernal pool invertebrates that have deposited their cysts, those cysts need that dry phase mm. in order to persist. <laughs> <laughs> and they need to bake in the hot Sacramento sun during the summer months. And if the pool were to stay wet year round, you'd see an entirely different array of both plants and animals. Uh -huh. Vernal pool animals, the little invertebrates and vernal pool plants have evolved in conjunction with the wet phase, flower phase, dry phase cycle mm -hmm. of the, the vernal pools here. 
Remember from earlier, David said that part of what makes a vernal pool a vernal pool is that underlying geology. It has to have that hard pan layer to bring the water table up really high. It's called a perched water table. And part of what that does is create a really special habitat for very specific plants. And then also vernal pools here in California, I mean, they're an endangered habitat. Mm -hmm. There used to be so many vernal pools throughout the Central Valley of California. And now we've lost probably 90 to 95% wow. of the historic vernal pools that used to be here. So it's, it's a rare habitat. Subsequently, mm -hmm. many of the plants and animals associated with vernal pools have become threatened or endangered right. as well because they've lost their habitat. And that habitat loss is primarily due to agricultural development mm -hmm. and urban development and things like that. So where can people still find vernal pools? Are they mostly in this area? Or can you find them down in Southern California or the Southern reaches of the Central Valley too? You can, you can find vernal pools in one of the largest contiguous blocks of vernal pool habitat is just a little Northeast of Merced. Hmm down in the San Joaquin Valley. But there are vernal pools down in the San Joaquin Valley. There are vernal pools in the Sacramento region. And as you go north in the Sacramento Valley, there are vernal pools up around Tehama mm -hmm. County, Glen County, you know, possibly even up to Shasta County. Wow. So I was curious about how far south you could go in California and still find vernal pools. And I found a page by the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance saying that there are vernal pools in San Diego. And the site says, while vernal pools once covered roughly 200 square miles in San Diego County, it's estimated that 97% have been destroyed due to land development for housing, agriculture, and grazing. Vernal pools that still remain are threatened by the spread of invasive grasses, off-road vehicles, and urbanization. So there aren't that many left and they are threatened, but there are some down there in San Diego. They even have a unique plant species in the San Diego pools called Mesa Mint. I'll put a link to this page in the show notes so you can learn more about it. So. You talked about a little bit, I was going to ask you how they're formed. I guess you didn't say how they were formed. I mean, it's, it's that hard pan underneath, but like, where does that come from? Why is that there here and maybe not in some other grassland areas? Beats me. Are you ready for all the geology puns you're about to hear? I don't know if you're ready. Here they come. I'm, I'm honestly, I'm pretty igneous when it comes to <laughs> geology. I've always just taken it for granted, but, um, <laughs> I'd come up with a few more geology puns if I were a little bolder. <laughs> so at any rate, yeah, the, the hard pan, I actually am not positive how it formed. Mm -hmm. But these are ancient riverbeds mm -hmm. in here. And so the riverbeds uh, flowing 150,000 years ago or, or more, they were carrying a lot of silt and eroded material mm -hmm. from the Sierra Nevada mm -hmm. range. And a lot of that was deposited. A lot of that was probably uh, clay particles and things like mm -hmm. that in the silt. And so the hard pan is predominantly clay mm -hmm. and, and cobbles and things like that. So the cobbles probably left over from the old riverbeds, the right. clay material that was deposited from those ancient riverbeds as it eroded down from the Sierra Nevada Fascinating. Range. Funny story. Weeks after recording this interview, I found out that David Rosen is actually friends with Nate Manley, the geologist from my first episode. And 
They know each other because Nate used to be on the board at Sack Splash where David works. So of course I reached out to Nate to try to answer this question. And I asked him why there was that shallow hard pan layer there under the vernal pools. And he said, it probably has to do with the distribution of sedimentary materials, sands versus silts versus clays, when they were first laid down. Then there's the effects of weathering. Older soils will develop a cemented horizon created by dissolution and disintegration of materials near the surface and redeposition of those materials lower down in the soil profile. He said we also have to consider bioturbation, the disruption and redistribution of near-surface soils by critters like pocket gophers. I don't know if you remember from the beginning of the episode, but I mentioned that there are these little tiny mounds scattered all over the vernal pool grasslands. And turns out that those little mounds are actually created by gophers who are moving the dirt around and the mounds fall roughly along the territorial lines of the gophers. So those are called Mima mounds. And Nate said that that's potentially related to the formation of the pools too. So the next one I wanted to ask you about is you mentioned the three phases, right? We've got the wet, the flower, and the dry. Right. What's your favorite? Oh, boy, that is so hard to say. <laughs> I, I would say I'm fascinated by the aquatic invertebrates uh, during the wet phase. I, I just love them. And, and you can just, as we were doing before, you can sit for hours yeah. and just watch them swimming around in the pan that you've collected. And it's so wonderful to see the students' faces when we have school field trips mm. coming out to splash and see the students just light up <laughs> when they look through a dissecting scope and see a live clam shrimp. Yeah. And that was the critter that they became the class expert on oh. when they were studying the splash curriculum in their classroom. Or, you know, when they see those vicious pinchers on, on an aquatic beetle larva up close and personal. Uh, and when they see the little fairy shrimp uh -huh. through a microscope. Because part of the splash program when the students are doing the splash lessons in class before they come out on their field trip, they actually get the opportunity to grow fairy shrimp in their class. That we send so them cool. fairy shrimp cysts. And it, don't worry, it's not from any endangered species uh -huh. or anything like that. And so the students put what just looks like dust in a glass enamel or a glass pan and fill it up with some spring water and you know, keep it away from direct sunlight uh -huh. where it's going to get too hot. And boom, they have little fairy shrimp. And the so splash cool. lessons get them doing uh, population surveys. Huh. Um, you know, the, the rate of emergence of the fairy shrimp from their cysts. And they graph things out. And, wow. and so it's, uh, you know, interdisciplinary. Yeah. They are working on math skills with our curriculum. They're working on science stuff with our curriculum. They have art opportunities with our curriculum. And, and it's just, it's a wonderful opportunity for many of these students to witness things that they've never had a chance to see. And when they come out on their field trips, so many of these kids have never been out in nature. Mm -hmm. They might be from Title I schools. They might live in an urban area where they're surrounded by buildings and pavement. And the transportation to get out here isn't The transportation is easy. a challenge. Mm -hmm. and, and so it's an incredible opportunity 
to provide a positive, exciting first experience in nature for these students. And that's what I think Splash is all about. Mm -hmm. You know, the cool information about the vernal pools is great, but what we are primarily out here to do is to make connections between mm -hmm. nature and these students mm -hmm. and, and get these students excited about being in nature and get them feeling comfortable with being in nature and get them interested in science so that they might want to pursue it later in life. That's fantastic. We so need people from a lot of backgrounds to be involved in science and a lot of different perspectives. Exactly. So that's great. Yep. And, and those nature connections are, are key to it all. Mm -hmm. And that's the true magic of Splash. I love this hands-on approach to getting kids involved in nature and science. And what if we adults want to come out and see the pools too? Well, if you live anywhere close to Sacramento, you can sign up for a public tour with Sac Splash. The last remaining date for a tour this year is April 24th, and there are still a few spaces available in the afternoon session. David says to add to the waitlist if that fills up, and there's still a chance that you can get in. You can sign up for the tours on sacsplash.org, which I'll link in the show notes. And if you can't get in on a tour, is it acceptable to walk around or do you just, is it, you just recommend that people stay away so they're not walking on the, the ecosystem or? That's, that's kind of a gray area okay, okay. right now. Um, the land manager out here, Center for Natural Lands Management, uh, who's managing the 1400 acre vernal pool preserve here at Mather Field for Sacramento County, they would prefer to not have a lot of people mm -hmm, wandering mm -hmm. around. I personally think there's, there's a fine line between too many people walking around and nobody walking around. Mm. We definitely don't want to impact the vernal pools negatively, mm -hmm. but there are some real advantages to having people come out here. That was the whole reason the splash program started. Mm -hmm. The only reason the 1400 acres of this vernal pool preserve are still here is because Eva Butler and Sacramento Splash got people coming out here, mm -hmm. built a community of vernal pool advocates who, when the time came, stood up to development interests mm -hmm. that wanted to put a sports complex in over the vernal pools, mm -hmm. soccer fields, baseball fields, and things like wow. that. And that would have done away with some of the premier vernal pool habitat and species in the whole Sacramento region. Getting people out here and learning about vernal pools, as long as they are respectful mm -hmm. to the habitat and its inhabitants, it's, it's really, I think, very critical to mm -hmm. the survival of vernal pools. People are only going to want to protect what they know about, mm -hmm. and people only know about what they are taught. And so when people come out here and experience it firsthand, you've got a vernal pool advocate for life right mm -hmm. there. Yeah, absolutely. So try to get on a tour. Yep. Do your best to get in one of those. Add to a wait list. If you can't and you really want to come see it, just be very respectful. Don't be picking flowers. Correct. Don't be Correct. walking in the vernal pools. Don't scoop out any invertebrates because you need a special permit for all exactly. of that. So just be super respectful and cautious around the vernal pools. Exactly. Okay. And, and it's currently not posted 
-hmm. no trespassing. So, you know, someone might come and ask what you're doing and visit with you for a little bit. If it's a Sacramento County Park Ranger or, you know, one of the managers from Center for Natural Lands Management. But, you know, technically right now it's not posted. So, okay. Mostly be respectful. That's the most important thing. Exactly. So that's what you need to know about visiting vernal pools in the Sacramento area at Mather Field. But I would imagine that it's similar in other places. So just make sure that wherever you live, if you want to visit vernal pools, to look into any local organizations that might be able to help with that. And if you visit on your own, make sure that you're not trespassing and make sure to be respectful there. I wanted to back up to a question earlier. I didn't ask my follow-up, which is we talked a little bit about where in California you can find vernal pools. Are there places outside of California with vernal pools? Are they similar? Are they different? There are vernal pools elsewhere. And and there are vernal pools in the eastern United mm. States, too. But they are very different. Oh. Most of the vernal pools out in the eastern states, you know, from, uh, you know, the mid-Atlantic region north up mm. into Maine, you find what are referred to as vernal pools. And they do fill up with water during the winter rains. They, the water stays in those vernal pools longer. I believe that some of them might dry up, but not all of them. And they typically are found in wooded areas. Hmm. Yeah, and this is the only vernal <laughs> pool we've seen that's got trees near it at all. Exactly. And it's more, exactly. you know, they're very widely spaced. We're not in the woods. <laughs> We're not in the woods by any means. And, uh, but the vernal pools out east typically are in a more wooded area. Hmm. But there are some similar critters. There are some fairy shrimp that live in those vernal pools. There are various salamander species that live in those Mm -hmm. vernal pools. One of the main characteristics of any vernal pool is there are no fish. And of course, the vernal pools out here dry up Mm -hmm. every year. Most of the vernal pools back east dry up every year Mm -hmm. and fish could not survive. And so the animals that live in the vernal pool have evolved different strategies to survive that dry phase. Mm -hmm. You know, the salamanders, they'll go through their aquatic larval stage, metamorphose into the terrestrial stage, and then they'll go and find a nice log to crawl under Mm -hmm. and, you know, survive hot, drier periods, Mm -hmm. staying moist, maybe go down out here. Some of the amphibians, like the Sierran tree frogs, the western spadefoots, you know, they bury themselves in Mm. in the soil. The spadefoots actually dig their own burrow. They're aptly named. (laughs) Exactly. They have little little black, hard, shovel-like structures on their hind leg, and they burrow backwards into the soil and cover themselves up as they go. So they might be you know, six inches down in the soil and they coat themselves with a layer of mucus and they stay there for 10 months. Oh my goodness, 10 months. Until precipitation comes and it kind of wakes them up. And if it seems like enough, they come out and they go to the vernal pool and they they mate. Wow. And then rinse and repeat. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. There have been moments that I've wished I could do this during the Sacramento summer. So, so here in you know this where it gets super hot in the summer in sacramento is the dry phase the longest phase it is okay definitely and in the eastern ones that you're talking about would the wet phase be longer probably okay yep here though in the dry phase is there really anything to see during the dry phase or is that it it can be really fun coming out in the dry phase you know my suggestion given the temperatures we get here come out in the morning yeah Um, (laughs) bring water come in the morning but 
if you walk out into a dry vernal pool, you're not going to necessarily be negatively impacted in the habitat because it's going to be really dry, okay, okay. hard, packed soil. Okay, but you can sometimes look very closely and find the exoskeletons of oh. some of the vernal pool invertebrates that were living there during cool. the wet phase. So this pool in particular has California clam shrimp oh. in it, and it has dragonfly larvae in it, and it has aquatic snails mm -hmm. in it. And you go out into the deepest part of the vernal pool, and of course during the dry phase it would be totally dry, but as the water receded in the vernal pool, all those little critters converged into mm -hmm. the last remaining wet areas. And then when that dried up, they died. And they left their exoskeletons concentrated in a rather small wow. area. And it's really kind of fun to go through and say, oh, look, this is the carapace from a vernal pool tadpole shrimp uh -huh. that was in here. Are they all sun bleached? at this point or, or they have no, color not still? Okay. They, some of them still have color, uh -huh. some of them are brownish. You know, but you can find the carapace, you know, exoskeleton from vernal pool tadpole shrimp. You can find, you know, dragonfly larvae, exoskeletons, mm. clam shrimp shells. You can find aquatic snail shells. And, and so there are things to see out here during, during the warmer months, wow. during the dry phase. You just have to know where to look. Exactly, and some of the birds that nest out here are still nesting at that point. Okay. So you might still see some meadowlarks, you know, sitting around singing and uh -huh. proclaiming their territory yeah. <laughs> and defending their territory and male red-winged blackbirds defending their territory and the nests of the females in certain areas. Yeah, so there still are, are cool things to see during those months. Nice. I just love the idea that you can go at different times of the year and see completely different things and have it always be new. Vernal pools are such special places and I love the work that they're doing at Zach Splash to try to preserve those areas and teach others about them, especially teaching kids, which is why I asked my next question. How can people support what you're doing here? How can you know we make sure that these pools get preserved into the future? Be advocates for open space protection. Mm -hmm. We have lost so much open space in the Sacramento area. I live in Woodland personally, mm -hmm. and, and you know, when I first moved to Woodland and I would drive back and forth to Sacramento Splash, between Woodland and Sacramento, all you had was the airport. Mm -hmm. Now we have the whole Natomas, North Natomas right. development. There are even more warehouses and businesses being established just south of the airport. And we're losing all that open mm -hmm. space. And there were vernal pools in that open space. And so in general, being an advocate for open space protection mm -hmm. is one of the best ways that you can protect vernal pools. Mm -hmm. If you want to support the education of kids mm -hmm. about vernal pools, then go to Splash's website, and we've got a very conspicuous button on there that <laughs> says, Donate Now. Go for it. And Everyone go. Exactly. Make a donation. And, and so you can certainly make a donation to Splash. David said that if you do want to make a donation, 
it will have the best, greatest impact if you do it on the big day of giving, which is on May 5th, because they're always matching donations on that day. David says that there have been close to 70,000 graduates from Splash's Investigating Vernal Pools program to date, and the program is still going strong. If you're listening and you're one of those 70,000 graduates, I would love to hear from you. So tag me in a post on Instagram about which vernal pool critter you became the class expert on. I would love to hear about that. David also said that Splash serves about 100 classes per year with this program, and it's looking into expanding, potentially using other vernal pools in the area. And lots of other educational programs are going on through Splash too, all of them run by a small and very efficient staff. So if you do choose to make a donation, just know it's going to a really good cause. Well, with that in mind, I only have one question left for you, which is, what about your workout here still just takes your breath away? Sorry, I get kind of choked up when I think about this. Um, seeing the kids' faces. Yeah. When, how often do you see a fourth grade boy jumping up and down with sheer delight because he just got to see his vernal pool flower that he became the class yeah. expert on? You know, we see that on a daily basis and it just it warms our hearts it truly does that's incredible yep such a worthwhile and so being able to do exactly what i'm doing right now sharing the wonders of this area and this habitat with other people yeah that's fantastic and that will stick with those kids for the rest of their lives it does that is so cool well thank you so much i know you guys are insanely busy you took so much time oh, to venture pleasure. out with me, and I really appreciate it. My pleasure, so. Michelle. It was it was truly a pleasure. How often, you know, can people say they get to go out and just sit by a vernal pool and <laughs> not often talk <laughs> with someone as nice as yourself? My first time, so thank so you so thank much. Thank you for Thanks, the opportunity. <laughs> I love David's passion for both vernal pools and instilling a love of nature in the next generation. It makes me feel so good to know how many kids over the years have been impacted by this program. Before I sign off, I just want to say thanks to a few people, including Nate Manley for consulting on geology for this episode, to my amazing patrons for making this show possible, to the very cool community of nature enthusiasts that's really starting to blossom around the show on Instagram. Your comments and questions show me that this work matters and is actually getting out there to people, so thank you for that. Thank you to everyone who has rated or reviewed this podcast. It really helps keep it up in the charts, which helps other people find it. So please do that if you haven't yet. It it really means a lot to me and I read them all and I love them. And thank you to my amazing best friend and life partner, Stan Brown, for doing more than your fair share of household stuff so I can make this podcast and for being my sounding board for everything to do with everything, but also for this podcast. The last little tidbit in each episode is that I tell you something interesting from my week. And this week, it's something embarrassing. So <laughs> I have this shirt and it's got this this native poppy. I think it's pronounced Mataliha. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. But anyways, it's got this poppy on it and I love this shirt. And I wore it uh, last week when Stan and I went out to the Vernal Pools to check out the flower phase. And I was so proud of this shirt. And I was just ready for someone to see me and give me a compliment on it. So we're walking out and this big group of people is walking away from the Vernal Pools. And I'm like, just ready for someone to say something nice about my shirt. And then 
we're walking by this guy and he and he kind of goes past me and right after he goes past me he goes I love your shirt and before I can even turn around I go thank you and then I turn around and I realize he's saying that to my husband who's right behind me and has this cool skeleton shirt on and he was really not talking to me at all so that was both disappointing and very embarrassing, but I was happy for Stan that he got a compliment on his very cool shirt. So anyway, uh, the teacher of this class that was out there did stop and compliment me on my shirt. So thank you. That was Renee. Thank you for that. <laughs> you you, uh, you saved me on that one. There was a compliment for my shirt out there. So thank you. Okay. Wow. This episode got really long. Thank you for listening. You're the best. I love you, and I'll see you next time on another episode of Golden State Naturalist. Bye! The song you just heard is called I Don't Know by Grapes, and you can find a link to that song as well as to the Creative Commons license in the show notes. Bye-bye.